my fear of saying that Anglicanism has as its chief asset ambiguity actually does a great disservice to our tradition. Our greatest asset is the gospel. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and we at Stand Firm are excited to offer you a special presentation today. Last week, Matt, J.D., and I talked about the so-called three-streams approach to thinking about Anglicanism. And as we talked, we remembered that our good friend, Ethan Magnus, rector of the other Grace Anglican Church, this one in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, had interviewed his friend, Dr. Gillis Harp of Grove City College, about the three streams, but had never actually published the interview anywhere. Dr. Harp is a historian who has written extensively about the three streams, and we are proud to share this conversation between Ethan Magnus and Dr. Gillis Harp with you on the Stand Firm podcast today. So today I have the honor and privilege of interviewing a friend, an author, and a professor. Dr. Gillis Harp is professor of history at Grove City College and is the author of many articles and several books, including a book about Bishop Phillips Brooks entitled Brahman Prophet, and his most recently published book, Protestants and American Conservatism, was recently released by Oxford University Press. Dr. Harp was a founding member of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City and served as senior warden and vestry member for six years. He has written for numerous Anglican publications, and some of his most read material has to do with the three-stream approach to Anglicanism. Welcome, Dr. Harp. Glad to have you with us today. I wanted to first begin with the simple question, uh, which you and I have talked a lot about, but some people aren't in on our conversations, and it has to do with Anglicanism itself. You know, the Anglican Church has been variously defined, and many people think that Anglicanism is a word that sort of eschews definition, but could you give us your best shot at it, at like succinctly defining this thing? Sure, Ethan, that's a, and that's not an easy thing to do. You may know that the first use of Anglican, you know, that's a relatively recent term. You know, you ask an historian a question like this, they immediately give you a lengthy historical answer. I'll try not to be too lengthy. The term itself, we think it we think it doesn't go back before 1598, so actually after the Reformation, and it's not really in common use until the 19th century. Um, we'd say that the term, the as an adjective, Anglican, is something relating to the established Episcopal Church of England that's separated from papal authority during the time of the Reformation, early 16th, mid 16th century, and then we'd say today churches of similar faith and order that are in communion with it. Of course, as the English spread out over the globe and colonized a good part of the world, they they brought their state church with them. It's interesting, though, that um, that yeah that term Anglican, as I said, wasn't used very often. The 1688 coronation oath had the king pledge to maintain, quote, the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant Reformed religion established by law. It didn't say anything about the Anglican Church. Which is Queen Elizabeth actually uh, committed to something similar, not quite, uh, uh, not uh, identical, uh, verbatim, but something quite similar when she was crowned in, in in 1953. But it's also notable, think for for Anglicans in North America, 
it's notable that the word wasn't used when uh, they adopted uh, a name for their new, you know, having separated from the Church of England in the wake of the American Revolution. What do they call themselves? They don't call themselves the Anglican Church. They call themselves the Protestant Episcopal Church. So they would, they would have said Protestant doctrinally, but uh, retaining the Episcopal form of church government, of polity, which, of course, some reformers of the 16th century didn't retain. Some did, many didn't. So that's a complicated answer. But No, it's very helpful. And if you were to have before you a person who was new to Christianity and they were shopping around for a church to belong to and they wondered, well, what do the Ang- how do the Anglicans differ from the Baptist church down the street or the Catholic church? Could you define for me what, what an Anglican church would believe? I think it would be a good place to begin would be say, well, what do we share with those different traditions? So we'd say basically we share creedal orthodoxy, um, although some of those Baptists might be non-creedal or might have some issues with, with, with the early church creeds, but we'll say by and large, um, you know, that, so that would include uh, the three uh, major traditions, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. So we share those early Catholic creeds, as we would call them, small c Catholic creeds. Um, and then we would say, okay, um, way in which we are distinctive, one way in which we are distinctive is, okay, we're a state church that definitely embraced the Reformation. Embraced it in a complicated way, in a difficult way, and it was a struggle, and it was prolonged, and things that the um, dust didn't really settle uh, at least until 1558, the coming of Elizabeth I. So it was a state church that has this wonderful continuity going back to the Middle Ages and before, but as some folks used to say, had its face washed at the time of the Reformation. Um, and so with our fellow Protestant brothers and sisters, we'd say we affirm the central insights of the Reformation, chiefly the issue you know, over which um, uh, Martin Luther famously said the church stands or falls, that is the understanding of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Um, so, and we're pretty much on the same page with the other Protestant traditions, Protestant churches, denominations, if you want to use that more modern term, uh, pretty much on the same page regarding those kinds of issues. So we share the Catholic creeds with our Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters, but we're definitely in the Protestant stream as far as um, the core teaching of the Reformation with regard to justification. Well, as you know, and speaking of streams, there are many current approaches that seek to define uh, the Anglican tradition, and some of those come from within our ranks and some of them from without. You hear a lot of language being thrown around these days, like that we are via media, somehow a a middle ground church between Roman Catholicism and uh, historic Protestantism. And I'd love to do an episode with you just about that term in particular. Uh, But an especially popular definition that uh, has been thrown around uh, at least in the last 10 or 20 years uh, has been known as the three streams approach to Anglicanism. Now, for those of our listeners who don't know what that 
term means, three streams, could you define it uh, for us? Tell us a little bit about it. Sure, yeah, it has an interesting pedigree, interesting history, uh, kind of genealogy behind it. <clears throat> Excuse me, only, maybe it's only in the last 30-some years that it's really been applied more in Anglican circles, but it actually goes back earlier to an earlier period, um, goes back as far as an interesting little essay by Leslie Newbigin published in the early 1950s where he talks about, well, there, and he's talking about Christianity in general, not just Anglicanism. He says there's kind of these three elements that, that uh, are, are tributaries that flow into the same stream, uh, or three streams into the same river. Uh, and he talks about one being Catholic, one being uh, Protestant, and one being, sometimes the term is used Pentecostal, sometimes it's, it's referred to as Charismatic. So one that emphasizes um, uh, the Catholicity of the church. There's some debate about what exactly that means and how that's defined. One that draws itself or draws its inspiration more from the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And then one that is really focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit and especially has manifested. Remember that the Pentecostal tradition is a relatively new one historically at the, you know, back to the uh, the late 19th, early 20th century in the Western United States. So, um, so Newbigin talks about that, but he's really talking not about Anglicanism. He's talking about ecumenical discussions and saying, look at here are these different emphases um, as we enter into uh, ecumenical discussions. And he was very involved in those in India as a missionary bishop there. Uh, as we enter into these discussions, uh, we can draw from these uh, we can use this as a kind of template to help guide our discussions. Uh, and now that later this was picked up, a very um, influential piece was written by Richard Lovelace uh, that appeared in Charisma magazine back in the 1980s. But there, and he's kind of pulling it along, and there he's, he doesn't seem to be talking so much about ecumenical discussion. And it's I think it's from Lovelace that a lot of Anglicans that published much more recently in 1980s, it's from Lovelace that Anglicans are kind of drawing it, and they're saying, well, this is this expresses perhaps the peculiar genius of Anglicanism that it brings together these three separate and distinct streams all in one tradition or denomination or whatever you want to call it, the Catholic element, the Protestant element, and this charismatic element. And that seems to have been really locked onto and and a lot of folks are really uh, run with that idea now in describing Anglicanism as Anglicans, especially in our day and age when Anglicans are thinking about identity questions, thinking about separating from parts, you know, parts of the church breaking up, um, separating from elements of the church that maybe haven't been faithful to the gospel, and so on. Many people trace the three streams back to the fact that English Christianity has tolerated a great deal of difference and distinction in theological emphasis and liturgical practice when you have certain Protestant parties that find themselves in agreement with the historical claims of the Reformation, even if they have slightly different approaches to, to worship, but would never align themselves with a uh, kind of a more Roman expression of worship in which you would find other Anglican churches expressing themselves. And, the, and you also had the Latitudinarian party, understood to be the more liberal party. But each of those 
entities or those those parties existed as separate from the other for the most part. There were overlaps maybe at times, but England didn't seek to blend the streams, so to speak. But that seems to have changed in some parts of the Anglican Church, or at least in the American uh, expression of it, in which we say um, that it, it's, it would be a positive thing if we could in some ways combine the high church or the Catholic stream, the low church evangelical stream, and maybe not the latitudinarian stream, because that's gotten us into trouble in recent years, but the charismatic stream. Now, whether or not the charismatic bit should be its own distinctive stream, since it's so late in the game, and also seems to be an outgrowth of the evangelical stream, that's somewhat confusing to me. But I think this is our current project. Do you think it traces back to the fact that for many years English Christianity has has had this implicit party system? Or Yeah, that's a good question. Know. Yeah, uh, it, and I think they really are kind of talking about apples and oranges there, but I think you're right. I've seen some Anglican commentators do that, say, oh, well, this three streams thing, this just relates back to the old kind of party divisions within Anglicanism. But it doesn't really, I mean, I, I think it's, it, it is apples and oranges. I think it is something rather different. We have to kind of be careful as we talk about these different parties. They emerge in the English church in the 17th and 18th centuries. They aren't what we just outlined in terms of that three streams, you know, Leslie Newbigin idea or Richard Lovelace idea. They are the old high church party, which, by the way, almost uniformly saw themselves as Protestant. They yeah. had no, they had no yes. trouble identifying themselves as Protestant. They did emphasize formal uh, liturgy, a kind of formalism in liturgy. They did emphasize the some of the distinctives of the established church, such as um, having bishops, the Episcopal form of, of church government, and having the elaborate cathedral system. They liked that. They, they stressed that. Evangelicals on the other side tended to be, uh, the old expression is, uh, the hotter sort of Protestant. Those who emphasized especially the uh, ministry of the word. As far as the third element in the mix, the latitudinarians or the, the liberals, of course they were latitudinarian liberal by 18th and early yes. 19th century standards, not by today's standards. What would they be regarded as today? Oh, I, I, today they would be viewed as sort of moderately conservative or or yes. uh yeah you know in terms of their <laughs> theological positions because the whole thing has shifted so but you know we shouldn't be surprised right we're talking in england we're talking about a state church an established church which is a big tent and was a big tent and had these different emphases i would you know they were they grew into human beings being what they are they grew into these kind of nitpicky parties and there was a lot of partisan conflict and i certainly don't want to return to that but those three parties really change by the mid to late 19th century when a new element emerges, a couple new elements we could say actually. One is the Anglo-Catholics emerge, so post-Oxford movement, the Anglo-Catholic movement emerges, and it's clearly uncomfortable with the Protestant identity of the Church of England. It really wants to say something different, it really wants to emphasize something different, and uh, what's really fun to do, if you ever want to have an interesting exercise, read some of the old-fashioned high church folks, uh, read their commentary on, on the new Anglo-Catholic movement. They are not fans. They, they don't have any problem identifying themselves as Protestants. Whereas Newman and, and some of his 
course, Newman eventually ends up in Rome, but Newman and some of his group reject this idea of the Church of England being doctrinally uh, Protestant. And then the third element also changes by the late 19th century. It goes from being moderately latitudinarian, mildly liberal, to much more a much more advanced liberal position, uh, rejecting uh, the authority of Scripture on a number of key things, uh, looking at Scripture in a much a much different way. So that by the 20th century, certainly by the late 20th century, you don't just have a big tent; you have real doctrinal incoherence, and that's certainly not a good thing. And I fear that some of the three stream stuff. I think the folks who, who promote it mean well. I think they have some actually have some good ideas, and there's some good emphases in it. But I fear that some of this may come from maybe a product of this lack of coherence in our own day, this you know diversity to the point of incoherence that's affected Anglican circles since well you can choose your date since the 1960s 70s. Mm. Well, I've heard this comment made by at least three bishops at this point that our chief virtue is our ambiguity. I don't believe that, <laughs> but I would love to, before we get to our concerns regarding the three-stream uh, movement, because I, I share some of those concerns, uh, let me ask you, what do you find helpful about this understanding of Anglicanism, or even in the motivations behind behind it? Yeah, I think there's some good things there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. One, if it means that uh, we're going to encourage low church and high church folks to talk to each other, that's always a good thing. As I say, the last thing I want to do is revive the really nasty you know, party battles of the 19th century. More broadly, outside of Anglicanism, again, we should maybe return to Leslie Newbigin's original thinking, which was this approach can help uh, not us understand Anglicanism, but help us in ecumenical dialogue and say, well, here's something that your tradition brings that's valuable. Maybe our tradition is overlooked it somewhat. Here's something valuable that our tradition brings. Let's sit down, put these on the table. Let's discuss uh, how we can uh, serve each other. You know, that's all big plus. If a three streams approach means that evangelicals need to, uh, the evangelical tradition, Anglicanism, need to take the sacraments more seriously. Uh, that's a good thing. Need to take, uh, need to uh, celebrate and recognize the good things about episcopacy. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. That's part of the unique genius of Anglicanism. It's, it's retaining some things that other reformers didn't retain. But so, in, you know, in terms of ecumenical dialogue, I think that's a good thing. In terms of dialogue within and among elements within the Anglican uh, tradition, that's a good thing. Hey, if it gets us to just to ask the question, what is Anglicanism? What's the heart of Anglicanism? That's a good discussion to have. It seems to me that within our divided world and uh, within an ever-changing context, I think that a chief motivation behind this movement is to create a unity in a world that is increasingly at odds with itself. I think that's commendable. I also have questions about the veracity and I suppose the longevity of this approach to uh, the Anglican tradition. 
this leads me to my next question. What do you think are some pitfalls within the three streams model? Either pitfalls that you've seen people fall into or things that you think will eventually become problems. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I think, and again, this is maybe primarily because uh, this is what I do for a living. I'm an historian, so I, I think of, I approach things from an historical perspective. And some of the three stream stuff is rather ahistorical. That is, it doesn't take seriously the historical record. It has a tendency, and this is a natural, I think, human tendency to um, not look at history the way it was, but to let, look at history the way we wish it had been. <laughs> and to make, unfortunately, to make Anglicanism a little bit of a wax nose, something you can kind of make on your own and not root it properly and, and fully in the historical record. So one thing that Anglicans need, of, of all different stripes, need to come to terms with is that the Anglican Church understood itself as a church of the Reformation since the time of Edward VI, certainly in the wake of the Elizabethan settlement, 1558. Doesn't mean that there weren't different elements and emphases, you know, within this big state church. As I said, it was a big 10, but that it understood itself as, as Protestant and Reformed. That's how it understood itself. And that that doesn't really change in a fundamental way until the coming of the Oxford movement in the 1840s and 50s, and then the subsequent Anglo-Catholic movement that comes in the wake of that. And now I've completely forgotten your original question, Ethan. No, that's fine. I, I was uh, asking, and this will be a, a rather um, expansive time uh, that, that we spend dealing with this question, but what are some pitfalls within the Three Streams model? So oh, right, right. one I of them is that it's not really historical, right, not rooted right. in the long history of Anglicanism at all. Right. So there, there's a problem there that, that folks have a tendency to be kind of romantic, uh, uh, to indulge in a kind of romanticism about um, the church they love, which is, that's, it's good to, I think it's good to um, have uh, a warm affection for your, your tradition, you know, your familial tradition. So, um, yeah, so a historical, that's definitely one problem. Another is just this this kind of easy synthesis, it's kind of theologically sloppy, or it, it can be, it can be, but not always, but um, it, it can be theologically sloppy or, uh, that people assume, oh, well, you can just kind of seamlessly synthesize a medieval Catholic position with the 16th century reformed position and with a, I don't know, turn of the century Pentecostal tradition, you know, um, and of course, there's some common elements there, and we should celebrate those. But also, there's some really important differences. And regardless of where we come down on the big, for example, divisions of the time of the Reformation, uh, regardless of where we come down on those, we need to recognize, okay, those were significant, and we can't just sweep those under the carpet. Philip Hughes used to say, in ecumenical discussion, sometimes they put wallpaper over the cracks and then stand back and say, look, isn't that a lovely wall? And we don't want to do that. We want to recognize, okay, there were cracks. What were the cracks? Maybe we're going to say that on some of these issues, we've actually had considerable progress and there has been some reconciliation on some of them. And I think there has been. Um, and so we should talk about that and how that happened. But we don't do that we should do that in a responsible and careful and historical way, an informed way, 
rather than just saying, you know, oh, it's just a difference of emphasis. Well, sometimes it's not just a difference of emphasis. It's actually a really different teaching. I would say on the crucial issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone, and the whole idea of the imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that's a crucial, that, that, that's a sticky, difficult question. And the traditional Protestant and Catholic positions are not easily mm -hmm. reconciled. And they say different things. And again, we've made, I think we've made some baby steps in the right direction, but uh, we're still far ways apart and we need to be honest and, and recognize that. So yeah, there's almost a kind of, um, I call it in one of my pieces, almost a kind of Hegelian idea of, well, these different emphases, they're just going to all flow together and balance each other out perfectly. But if they contradict each other, now they don't contradict each other in everything, but in some areas they do contradict each other. Um, that's a problem, and we need to recognize that and be honest about it and deal with it in, a, in an honest and open and constructive way. I myself have met uh, Anglican ministers who would affirm the doctrine of transubstantiation. I've met others who would deny the substitutionary atonement and I think those examples stem from what you're speaking about regarding theological ambiguity. It can at times be almost a weaponized ambiguity where you can even defy some of Anglicanism's core principles or its teaching in the articles of religion or even the prayer book. How one would, for example, go through the historic prayer book Eucharistic canon while disbelieving in the substitutionary atonement is almost unthinkable to me those sort of errors or trajectories grow out of this theological ambiguity. For example, you were talking about some of the streams being or lacking a coherence or a synth an easy synthesis. You think about different views on the sacraments. Historically, Protestants and Catholics have been divided over the number and even nature of the sacraments, and that is not a position that is easily reconcilable, is it? Right, and you can't, you know, you have to say, well, there are two, or are, are there not two sacraments? I mean, that's what, the, that's what the articles teach. Part of the problem here, of course, is the status accorded the Anglican formularies. So when Can talk, you define the formularies yeah, for us? Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about the formularies, we mean those documents that, that come out of the Reformation that essentially define the distinctive position of the established church, right, of the Church of England. It would be the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, it would be um, connected to those, the two books of homilies. They often get neglected and they shouldn't be. More, more about them later. Uh, and of course, the classic um, 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And sometimes people mention the ordinal, but of course the ordinal is part of that. So we all lump that together. And um, you know, you may disagree with some of those things. Just don't lay claim to be to be a classical Anglican, if you know, if you're saying things like, "Well, I can't accept the the, the, the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement," then you really do have a problem calling yourself an Anglican. You know, maybe you're right about that. Maybe maybe Paul's wrong about that. The Apostle Paul. I, I think you're. I think you're all wet. But uh, but you know, still, um, you need to come to terms with what do the Anglican formularies? What have they? traditionally said, understood in their original historical context, what do they said on those subjects, 
Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be a development over time. Doesn't mean that there can't be a new emphasis on different things over the over the decades, over the centuries. Um, some development of doctrine, I think, within certain parameters is is legitimate. But I think, yeah, people need to come clean on what's their position with regard to the Anglican formularies. And again, that's another thing that some folks in this Anglican three streams. It's not so much that they would attack the Anglican formularies. They don't do that. I'm grateful for that. But they just kind of ignore them. They Well, they ignore the Reformation. It's almost as though that didn't happen or that it was some extreme Anglo-Catholics used to say that, well, uh, the Reformation did happen. You know, the arm was broken, but it was set wrong. That's an issue. Then you really got an issue with Anglicanism. And we should say, by the way, that's a position that ultimately... Uh, Newman, John Henry Newman, comes to. That is, he tries to have it both ways. Can you define who he is first? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, an, an, a, a very important, arguably one of the most important uh, leaders of the Oxford movement in the 1830s and 40s, um, who initially pushes for a kind of reform within the state church, within the Church of England, ultimately, in the wake of a very controversial track, track 90, that he writes which says you can reconcile the medieval understanding of the Mass with the 39 Articles. He decides that actually you can't do that. I think he comes to a very honest position in recognizing that his whole notion prior to his going to Rome, his whole notion of a the Church of England being a kind of halfway house between, between Rome uh, and Geneva, maybe, or something, that's untenable, that that's a kind of fantasy ultimately Newman recognizes that and says no I need to I need to go all the way to Rome yeah Newman I think ultimately does the does the honest thing and and the historically accurate recognizes it with greater historical accuracy the character of the Church of England and the Catholic Church awarded him with a cardinal's hat that's right so it all yeah. worked out mm-hmm. um, so a lack of historical rootedness and theological incoherence when, when I, I've heard from various people within the Anglican world that the chief asset to being, a, to being an Anglican is that you can embrace ambiguity, how would you respond to that statement? Yeah, I think I know what some folks mean by that. Uh, that is, I think some folks mean, well, we want to be careful as Anglicans um, to emphasize the most important central things. We don't want to major in minors. Yes. That's and wise. that's that's why. So that's yeah. that's smart. Um I think one of the features of I'm a great admirer uh uh of the Westminster standards, but one of the features of the Westminster standards is that they are sometimes a little bit too specific for my liking on some points. They go into greater detail. Of course they're a product of a later period, right? Yes. Of the seventeenth yeah. century. But one of their, I think, weaknesses is that they define things with greater precision than perhaps is warranted. Uh, and so um, that's one of, I think, the good things about the 39 Articles is that it is, it does lay out a broad position. It doesn't, you know, go into great precision about, well, is the, are the seven days uh, uh, described in uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2 are those 24-hour periods or not? You know, those kinds of questions. 
So I think some folks, that's what they're, they're thinking of. If, however, they mean that we're not clear about the core essentials, then I think they're badly mistaken. Because if you read the articles, if you look at the prayer book, you'll discover, you read the, the two books of homilies, you'll discover on the central issues, you know, how is a um, sinful, fallen human being to be placed in a right relationship with a holy God? Anglicanism is crystal clear. It's, it's got the Pauline gospel message crystal clear on that essential issue. What other concerns do you have uh, regarding the three streams understanding of Anglicanism? Does anything else come to mind? I was just going to say another thing that occurred to me as I was talking about that is it, it is a little, some of the folks that I've heard um, use that approach, sometimes uh, it reminds me of a kind of postmodern understanding. That is a postmodernism that criticizes clear affirmations of doctrine and instead talks a lot about experience. Now, of course, as an evangelical, I think experience is important. I, I want to endorse what the 18th century evangelicals called an experimental faith, by which they meant, you know, are you really yourself personally committed to Jesus Christ? It's not just a head thing. It's not just uh, a habit that you go to church on Sunday. But if it's only experiential, then you've got a problem. If it's, if it's experientialism and if it's emotionalism, and yes, yeah, some postmodern folks, they'll say, well, this doctrine affirms this, but this over here, this different position affirms that. Uh, I can embrace the contradiction. Um, You're seeing I'm, everything as a paradox right. that you could embrace. Right. Yeah. right. And I think ultimately that promotes a kind of incoherence. I don't think it's scriptural. There's a little bit of that, what Robert Bella, the sociologist, talked about when he talked about, he called it Sheilaism. <laughs> it's a funny name where people kind of make up their own religion. We live in an age where people want to do that, where they are interested in kind of tailoring things to their own, to their own model. Uh, they have that sort of suits them. And, and sometimes, sometimes the three streams stuff seems to go in that direction. Robert Weber, uh, the late Robert Weber, who, who wrote some very good books and helpful things, also wrote some books that I, and especially some of the stuff he did at the end of his life, where he embraces some of this postmodern language and terminology that I think is a, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. It contributes to some of the murky thinking on this subject. It also makes, uh, I think, Anglicanism in particular and Christianity uh, in general kind of like a salad bar where one's tastes are catered to in such a way that you don't have to eat the full meal. You can just take what seems appealing to you. I worry about that just because Anglicanism does have a depth and a richness that you don't have to recreate, and you don't have to have the burden of recreating it. Whenever you're talking about an experimental faith that is one that is experiential, but not governed by experience, a faith that is biblical in its orientation, it is rooted in history, and is open to the Holy Spirit, that's basically a description of the historic Protestant position within Anglicanism. In other words, those elements of small-c Catholicity and of openness to the 
the, the regenerative work of the spirit and the gifting of the spirit is already something that was part of the package, not something that has to be, in some sense, added in as a new stream. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, if you think about it, that idea, I like your metaphor there of the, in our part of the world, it, we go, going to Eden Park and, and, and getting a smorgasbord. Um, but it's a very American thing, isn't it? Robert Bella says yes. that. That, that you can kind of create your own religion. Sometimes the three streams think converge on that, uh, can go in that direction, maybe un- unwittingly. It's kind of in the air that we breathe in our culture. And it's almost a, a prizing of ambiguity, almost for its own sake. I remember uh, speaking with a rector who had almost a Zwinglian sacramentology and yet was swinging incense with the best of them and kneeling down before what was an altar in a in a chasuble as if Jesus were physically present on that altar. When I asked, why would you do such a thing when you're a functional a Zwinglian or a person that believes that communion is a memory device that helps you to intellectually consider the benefits of the atonement, he simply said, well, I think it looks beautiful. What right. would you say to that clergyman? Yeah, yeah. again, it's a kind of postmodern thing. Well, you know, it's a matter of taste. It doesn't teach any doctrine. Well, of course, in the 16th century, the, the English reformers would have said, good heavens, of course it teaches doctrine. That's why we got rid of some of that stuff. Absolutely. You know? Now, you can make an argument. Um, I don't usually find it persuasive, but one could make an argument saying, oh, well, the English reformers, they went overboard because of the period they lived in. They got rid of too much. They, they um, trimmed things too severely, trimmed back uh, the shrubbery too, too radically. Uh, and that's fine. You can make that argument. Maybe there's some things that they got rid of that should have been restored or whatever, and some of those have been restored. But no, no, I would say that it's, it's, definitely, um, it's definitely a problem when you, you want to say it, it means what I say it means. Well, that's a very ahistorical, you're ripping it out of its historical context and saying you define what it means um, rather than listening to the witness of the church and the history of the church. Some people would push back at this point and say, look, the Reformation happens in the 16th century, but English Christianity predates the 16th century by over a thousand years. And so they might say to you, you're taking one time frame and saying that it defines the whole tradition of the Church of England. What about the first 13 centuries? Now, how would you counter that argument? Yeah, that's a good, that's a legitimate question. And um, I think it's a couple of things. One, I'm not saying that there isn't historical development post-1558. Clearly there has been. You can ask yourself, it's a good thing to ask yourself, which of those historical developments, subsequent developments, are consistent with the formularies, which aren't, which can really have a, can make a claim to being genuinely Anglican and which, which can't. Uh, and how do you define that? And that's, that's, those are just some difficult, you know, kind of hermeneutical questions. So I'm not saying that, you know, sub, there's no subsequent historical development. That's number one. And then number two, going back yet yeah, to your original question, 
obviously we we're not saying that there aren't wonderful things in pre-reformation christianity in england there are many wonderful things there and what was the standard by which if we say that the church of england washed its face in the 16th century what was the standard they used what, what was the soap the soap was scripture that scriptures are ultimate final source and corrective and so we tested those some of those medieval developments and those that didn't pass the test those that um, that did not have good scriptural warrant uh, that was part of washing the face that was part of the church cleaning itself up getting rid of some of those things it doesn't mean that we ignore everything that happened in uh, the medieval church um, some of which was wonderful and a wonderful working out of the gospel message some of which some of which wasn't wonderful uh, and had more to do with corrupt human traditions but uh, it's certainly true today it's sad to say that many non-anglican uh, evangelicals ignore that history you know completely leapfrog over the entire medieval church and that's a shame and that and you know that really is evidence of a lack of historical consciousness and that's not a good thing so if folks are alienated from their kind of American pop evangelical roots that are tradition that tends to be so ahistorical and they're attracted to Anglicanism because we're we have a better historical consciousness then I say that's wonderful we welcome those people that's a good thing but it's certainly about scripture as the primary authority and even rises above the tradition of the church which when understood as a helpful conversation partner when we read scripture that's one thing but when it's but we do not believe that the church tradition that we've inherited or that any church has inherited we don't believe that it's equal to the divine text one of my concerns about the three streams model is I think it favors in some way utility over theology. It says, how do we keep a disparate group of Christians who happen to be under the same label together without having them hive off and break apart? Now, I believe in unity. Jesus prayed for it insofar as we are able to work towards it. How could anybody be against that? And at the same time, as we are pursuing unity, you don't want to lie or paper over uh, things that are of great importance or issues that have yet to be worked out. We don't want to create uh, an easy synthesis where there simply isn't one. And my, my fear of saying that Anglicanism has as its chief asset ambiguity actually does a great disservice to our tradition. Our greatest asset is the gospel, not ambiguity. When ambiguity becomes the end, or when a model seeks to create a synthesis at all costs, which I'm not saying that it's, it, it intends that, but what if that is a very sad byproduct that we are, we're, we've created a model that can keep us all together, even when we don't agree, and sometimes don't agree about core matters, in that sense, does a utilitarian uh, mechanism trump theological truth? And I think sometimes it does.
What do you? What would you say about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, and, and again, if the impulse is can be a good impulse, yeah, we definitely do want to pursue unity and and promote those things that we share in common. So that's all good, but I think you're right. There's a tendency to do this sort of well, you know, here's a pragmatic way to handle this. Okay. We recognize we mean something totally different from each other on this topic, but we're going to affirm it, affirm this sort of um, umbrella term together and thereby pretend that the divisions don't exist. And that's not a good strategy. That's not a good approach. We need to be frank and open about what our differences are within Anglican circles and say, let's talk about these things constructively. The first thing to do in that situation is recognize the difference that a doesn't equal b yes. and let's talk about that and how did we get here and maybe there's a a weakness and a problem within my tradition that needs to be addressed yes maybe there's one in yours that needs to be addressed and i think sometimes the three streams thing it could facilitate that kind of good discussion i think sometimes it doesn't if people are asking questions of you about how they can get a a clearer understanding of Anglicanism, maybe a less romantic understanding of Anglicanism, maybe just a different understanding than the three-stream stuff that they've been uh, receiving because they see some problems and they're not sure what to do. Uh, They have questions that have yet to be answered. Where would you steer them? Oh, yeah, there's lots I could recommend. Let's start with the books and maybe start with um, the old stuff uh, because the old stuff is often the best stuff. I think sometimes people are put off by uh, 16th or 17th century literature and think, oh, it's going to be really difficult to read, and sometimes they're right. But you know what's very easy and accessible? Uh, Bishop John Jewell, his famous Apology of the Church Church of England. It's actually not difficult to read. It's, you know, a little more flowery than something you'd have written in the 20th or 21st century, but there's a sh- it's not that lengthy. There's actually a nice paperback version of it. Um, Yeah, Bishop John Jewell, Apology of the Church of England. Wonderful book. The way he lays out the position of the Church of England, of how the Church of England was attempting to be truly Catholic, um, how he believed some of the aspects of the late medieval church were not Catholic in the true sense. Um, He's wonderful. Of course, he was one of the mentors uh, for uh, uh, for Richard Hooker in the 17th century. Okay, I will admit, reading Richard Hooker is not easy. <laughs> uh, he has very long sentences, and um, but there there are a couple people who are working on uh, producing a kind of modern language version of Hooker. Stay tuned on that front. He's definitely worth reading. Wonderful book. Uh, recently had its uh, had an anniversary 20th anniversary Paul Zoll's book Protestant faith of uh, face of Anglicanism that's a, that's a great book uh, that's a really good book um, uh, easy accessible I, I can't recommend that highly enough there are other folks I could recommend um, uh, commentaries uh, on the articles of religion there's a superb commentary. It's not easy reading, but it's it's so thorough and scholarly uh, by Griffith Thomas, published back in the 1920s, late 20s, early 30s, if I remember correctly, called uh, Principles of Theology. 
that's been reprinted recently and that's just a gem that's a gold mine uh if you want to you know look at someone who really understood the articles in their historical context correctly accurately and uh, just a very scholarly thoughtful treatment that's a great book let's see almost any book by j.i packer or john stott i would recommend yes i agree <laughs> not all of them speak to the question of you know distinctive uh, anglican teaching uh though some do um stott's book the cross of christ has some anglican material in yes. it but of course it's just mostly about the gospel one of my uh, hopes is that we at grace anglican embody a, a gracious spirit as we deal with brother and sister christians and uh, anglicans who are wrestling through these questions uh, we're simply trying to represent what we feel is faithful uh, to the tradition uh, and opening up conversations and this is what our interview today has been has been about and what it what it's intended for so i want to thank dr harp uh, for his time today and uh, i hope it will lead to uh, thought-provoking questions and the search for truth so thank you so much thanks ethan thank you so much for listening to ethan's conversation with dr harp if you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch will, Lord willing, be back to join me next week. I'm Nick Lannon, and until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Standing firm.